I wonder if just for a minute, um, anyone who has the ability to turn your screen on would do it. And I'll just scroll through some of the chess boards or checkerboards just to say kind of hi to everyone. <laughs> um, willing to be seen for a minute in your all your glory, <laughs> despite the lack of haircuts or whatever else might um, be there. And you can sort of, you know, say hi to each other too, visually. No blame if you don't feel ready for that, it's fine. Um, just feels good to see you. Okay. Come back and find my own screen. Um, so just to start, because this is such a different uh, form for giving a talk than, you know, what I'm used to and being at CIMC and kind of feeling the warmth of everyone together um, in the space, in one room and something that we, um, not able to do right now. I just want to invite us each to remember into our day or our week and try to remember some being who might have been kind to you in some way or other. Just invite your mind right now to, you know, I guess, pay attention in yourself and try to remember, may not come up right away. Could be something really small, just someone that emailed you and wanted to know how you were, how you're doing. My mind is uh, sensing the, the, the Nicholas being here, kind of holding the line, holding the tech piece. Or it could be a dog that wagged its tail or an ancestor or anything. Just see if to some degree, if this exercise doesn't work for you right now because of getting ready to listen to me say something and you're not like in the space to do it, just see if uh, now or in the future when you can find access to just remembering someone who's helped you or been kind to you also to feel uh, their impulse and your dignity to receive that kindness. The person who wondered how I was this morning, for example. And because I was kind of stuck in a little pattern of, you know, one of the th little whirlpools that can come up in being stuck at home and different kinds of things that um, it was quite helpful for me and supportive to remember just that connection with someone um, who was living in Western Mass, lives by herself and was thinking of me and so made me think of her, thinking of Nicholas today. So with all the hardship that this time includes, it's also, I think, helpful for us to remember that our not being together is actually a collective gesture of compassion and, and wisdom to forbear from 
exposing ourselves and one another to uh, an illness that we can't necessarily easily keep track of. It's not necessarily being fully imposed on us from the outside, although there's some of that, but someone, um, there was a meme going around that was misattributed to Bill Gates and didn't come from Bill Gates, but saying that the reason that we know we'll recover from this is just looking at the empty streets that we're all doing this together. And when we, when it's time to not be doing our collective gestures in this way, we'll be doing them in another way. Um, and this is where our hope lies in, um, in our future. So bear with me as I try to look at notes and um, also try to hold like that I'm present for this screen. I chose this topic, life as our path, because it's kind of like life uh, has reached out with its giant paw and batted us around a little bit right now. Um, and implicit in the idea of a path is that it's maybe going somewhere and it may have unexpected twists and turns. And also that our practice of being aware in the moment, um, often called mindfulness and bringing a quality of depth and care to our relationship in the present moment with ourself and others and our life as a whole, that um, this mindfulness practice is for any kind of path. And traditionally in the Dharma, the teachings often evoke images and metaphors of journeys like the wheel um, that turns. That, of course, they're only showing one wheel, but they're thinking of something that's going somewhere. You know, the wheel doesn't just go somewhere by itself. It's part of a wagon or a vehicle. There's also the path of Dharma that's often talked about, or the way, the mind that finds our way. In the early images of the Buddha, he didn't want to have images of a person for us to look at. That came upon, you know, when the Greeks appeared. But one of the early images that were evocative of the Buddha were just footprints that you can follow the way that someone else went on their way and that that could be helpful. Maybe it's just deeply resonant that we're all somehow on a journey or travelers through this life, maybe finding our way home. And it's also a contrast to um, maybe not traveling <laughs> this much, but that it can be quite a trip to be home in our living room, um, in our living space more. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't always um, feel so comfy. It can feel rocky at times. So our landscape may not be just as flat or as paved as we might have liked, but actually paved landscapes are not alive. Um, and though it, it may not be paved, there may not be a trail. <laughs> it may not always be solid ground. Um, and yet somehow or other we keep going. That's the button I'm wearing from the National Museum of African American History. Like, keep going and keep keep going. And on the Dharma path means also keep um, stay oriented toward the vision of bringing presence, and wisdom, intelligence, and compassion to everything we do, and as much as we can to cultivate the causes of freedom and 
this deeply forgiving vision of understanding our patterns and that we can be liberated from them inwardly and outwardly. And there's certainly a lot of advice and voices out there about uh, what to do to support ourselves. And this is only one of the different skillful means that are offered. I, um, having been an adventure travel writer in the past, I still uh, look at Outside Magazine online and they had an article about revisiting our bucket list, um, revisiting all the places you thought you wanted to go and the, uh, <laughs> the writers suggested that you remove going to the Colosseum and roaring like a gladiator from it or anything that isn't as meaningful as you thought it might have been in another set of circumstances. So I want to say that um, I feel like there's value in this detour or this pause that we've all been forced to take and this change maybe even the lack of availability of some of our previous goals in life um, can have a blessing side in disguise. Like we've started to see certain things that aren't working on the collective letter level that are exposed by this and also what is and does work. But for me, and I don't know if this is true of any of you, but um, this stoppage thing has, put me in a place to sometimes wonder what the rest of my life means. You know, that it's not a kind of mindless, just doing the same old stuff again, that has its own sense of generating meanings or being like in a meaning field and all of a sudden it doesn't feel the same. And I think we all know that as much as we wanna maybe go back to what we thought was normal, um, even that may not have felt like it was working so well for all of us. Um, some new uh, normal will, will emerge from this. And what can I do now to be kind of ready or contributing to my own well-being at those times or as the normal emerges? But now staying home, I'd like to also Think about not letting our ordinary mind take over this internal time and have to feel like we're being super productive or anything like that and to take the crisis as an opportunity, which is something in the Tao Te Ching, they say. One thing I found really reassuring is that the Dharma paradigms haven't really changed at all. You know, we might think a new social paradigm or a new way of doing things going to restaurants or movies um, won't be the same, but actually the Dharma is kind of like ready for this here. And noble truth number one um, that was said to be one of the first things the Buddha taught his, to his dearest friends was accepting that uh, human life can bring suffering and bring challenges. Um, that feels a little bit hardcore. Like I, I listened to Narayan's talk on joy and felt extremely moved by that and the nourishing and the feeding on joy that she mentioned. But I think actually accepting that life brings suffering as a human is part of that joy and kind of is a strand that makes it poignant and beautiful for us. And I'll say that 
having been a person who's sick with this and having that positionality within this pandemic, you know, um, that there was a kind of a relief in being sick and saying, you know, I don't really need to avoid getting infected. You know, I am infected. <laughs> and there's something when I like place my mind and say like to the best of my ability that, um, Life as a human is not all that easy. And it, you know, I've been alive now for 64 years. I'm, you know, relatively intelligent and relatively healthy, sort of. And I certainly have a lot of gratitude for, you know, circumstances of privilege that not everyone else may have. And um, it's not always been that easy, like if I just look at it. And yet, part of my mind, sort of feels invested in thinking that if I just keep at it, it's going to work out and all this, all these problems are going to stop once and for all. And, um, in being sick and having strategized like to the best of my ability to avoid getting sick. I mean, I sort of knew that, um, maybe traveling in early March might not be the greatest, but we weren't certainly doing anything like insane at the time. Um, actually, it was late February, and I think I got infected on March 8th. Um, I thought I was out running it, and I didn't. So in the Buddhist thinking, there's relief in opening to and saying, you know, like, yeah, you know, there's going to be some physical suffering in our life. Like the, the Buddha said, birth, aging, illness, and death are suffering. And physical suffering, to some degree, we can't completely avoid it for ourselves or for other people. That doesn't mean that we collapse and just, you know, run out in the street and sacrifice ourselves for herd immunity or anything like that. But in acknowledging that we can care for each other, care for ourselves, learn what we can, stay informed, get accurate information, and still there may be a time for not turning away from being sick or each other being sick, and that there's beauty in our hearts that's available for that too. People have been relying on this teaching for thousands of years and on this understanding that the Buddhist practice is actually really useful and helpful at times of difficulty, plagues and famines and colonization and political oppression, um, that cultivating some of this inner strength that is one of the capacities of human beings. Um, and just in the tradition that CIMC is part of, monks in Burma and Thailand turned toward meditation in the 1880s when they were invaded by the British and their countries were taken over um, and occupied by others. And the monks even got more interested in meditation than they had been in the past and they started learning it more themselves and then they started teaching it and offering it to unusual groups of people who hadn't been meditating before, lay people, and figuring out how to teach lay people who weren't full-time meditators and encouraging lay people to sort of organize their lives so there would be space for meditation. Later on, when there was an economic depression in Burma in the 1930s, like everywhere in the world, one writer wrote this, which I thought was really uh, incredible. 
It seemed as if the nation was going into training in mental health, spiritual strength, and intellectual discipline. I'm going to read that again. It seemed as if the nation was going into training in mental health, spiritual strength, and intellectual discipline. That actually uh, we may overlook the our internal powers and capacities, and in part because um, you know we may not understand the benefits of internal training to develop our inner capacities to be fearless and loving at the same time or something like that, to be a source of love and nurturing for each other and like that, to find a way together and individually in our lives. So let's say the physical birth and death and illness may not be things we can avoid, but we can respond with gentleness and care and to our own difficulties and those of others. The Buddha also pointed to um, secondary types of suffering, the mental and psychological suffering and existential suffering. These are things that may not be just as given as illness and death and birth are. Sometimes we go like sort of far and say that uh, mental and psychological suffering are not necessary or extra. Now, clearly, you know, some outer sufferings are caused by internal problems and distortions of human beings. Like there would have been enough personal protective equipment to go around, just like there's enough food to go around. And just like climate change is a human caused issue, there are ways that our human orientation to life can generate more well-being or less well-being. And it's quite visible if you see it on the outer world. But what about like now when we're bombarded with images of fear and scariness and loss and how much our internal state can feel, you know, really besieged by that or, you know, that's the media, but there's also what's going on in our personal lives, um, places where the ground seems to have fallen away or we've lost really important people or really important situations. What do we do with that? degree of internal distress. Now, just to say what's important about the Buddhist vision of this is that it really is very forgiving. Like one of the things that's, or, you know, our desire for control, I wrote this in my notes, like how much we wish we could make things be different and we can't, um, or we can, but then we have to let go and stop. So we do what we can right, on the outer level, but then there might be a limit to what we can do on the outer level. And then we have like this edge where our ability to control things and make it work out the way we want to starts to bite back at us. Sometimes it's painful to see the degree of insanity in our world. And what does that mean when it resonates inside us? Is it ours? What does it mean that, um, you know, we're under greater stress just from the outer conditions right now? Well, I want to share that one of the things that I learned from while I was sick and my husband was also sick was a kind of appreciation for, like, the kind of realities and the wildness of my own mind at that time. You know, the, the hyper-focus that I'd 
devoted to researching to try to figure out how to take care of us, you know, this sort of zzz. Um, but also, that was kind of a good response, I think, on the part of my body and mind, that I was trying to work with the problem that we were having, fortunately, through the internet and, you know, having some doctors in the family, which is a privilege, but there wasn't much help for us otherwise, you know, and I think we all may feel like we're all here a little bit on our own, <laughs> trying to find our way through it. Well, nobody really knows, you know, like they're there are edges in the information and stuff that's more and less accurate. But like, say I'm home, there's no real treatment, just rest, hydrate, try to eat well. And what the doctors actually told me after I got a test, they said, when you can't get up to go to the bathroom, then come to the hospital. And I'm like, well, how am I gonna come to the hospital if I can't go to the bathroom? <laughs> it was kind of funny, but then it actually happened that my husband started to really tank and I had to decide to send him to the ER. He, he didn't wanna go, he thought, um, he was going to die in the hospital. Like his mind was really terrified and a friend of ours um, intervened and really encouraged us to send my husband by saying, if you don't go to the hospital right now, you'll probably be dead by the afternoon. <laughs> well, that, that convinced him and he went, right? And I had a few moments of, that felt very real and extremely sad, both of saying like, he's going to get the best that anyone can do and the best that anyone can do might not be enough. And I might never see this person again, you know, and to really let that happen in my mind. I actually called my, one of my Tibetan teachers at the time, at the time, right after they took David away in the ambulance. And I thought, wow, okay, well, it's not my job anymore to take care of him. And huh. so I made this gesture of reaching out. And the first thing this person my dear beloved teacher did was feel like they had to help me and say like, well, try not to panic. And I said, well, you know, I'm having a lot of feelings right now, but I think I'm okay to have big feelings right now is fine with me. Actually, I was a little more sharp than that. I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> but I actually really was. I really was respectful for the sanity of my mind in producing these responses. And then later, this is an important thing about both the sanity of having feelings and also something about relating to our internal reality. I noticed um, when David was getting ready to come back from the hospital and they said he could come back, I got really pissed off and I was like, I don't want him back. I want you to keep him in the hospital and take care of him so I don't have to anymore because I can't handle it. I can't handle having him at home again. But then I realized, you know, actually that he's coming back means he can take care of himself again. And this anger that I felt was like this release and understanding of all this stress that I'd been under and I wasn't able to afford to feel it because he wasn't, he might not be okay. So I had to sort of hold my mind in a certain place. And then after I realized my mind has just been doing this insane thing of getting pissed off. Wow. And under all of that was this flood of just gratitude and love for this person. Um, so I know this is going a little bit into my story here, but what I want to say is that sometimes our mind is really sane and beautiful and producing emotions and feelings that are big and maybe hard to be with, but, but it's kind of great that we have this. And at other times there's ways that it sort of like goes into like a little bit of a craziness. Um, and that can be really interesting to see. 
like in minor ways, the crazinesses that we have of like, uh, you know, if some of us have been spending more time on Zoom, how much time you spend looking at yourself and your hair instead of looking at other people. And that's even said to be one of the micro traumas of being on Zoom that we don't necessarily, you know, look at our own image as much in conversation as we do on Zoom. And suddenly we're picking ourselves apart um, in ways that we may not normally have to. Um, So just what I want to say that even in the recognition that we might be going a little bit, you know, crazy at times here, that there's an invitation to a real compassion for, you know, the depth of what we're all going through right now and how hard it is and stepping outside our, our conventional frames for a minute and just holding like together, like I know each of you in this, room you have your own stuff and it could be really big stuff and that we don't know and it, it actually is really big stuff because it's happening to all of us and it's also reverberating through us what's happening in our world and the, the big experiment that we're all doing together all the people dying you know So just to say that in the teachings, there's this understanding that we can choose our internal reaction, that although we may have these kind of natural patterns, um, everyone has internal and external stressors, that we can develop the inner strength of actually turning toward our internal experiences with a quality of openness and attention that's kind of unusual. It like builds on the normal awareness and natural awareness that we have through the day. That's our sentient beingness and our intelligence. And it's kind of like turning the light on a little bit more, turning the warmth of the light of our heart and mind onto what's actually going on, what we're living through. This is what I mean that life is our Dharma path, that our heart, open to be with this. Actually, that's the liberating quality that we have. This natural ability to be with things as we enhance it and open it and strengthen it in this like collective mental health exercise that we're doing, to just be with the way things are makes us stronger. It's kind of ironic. Um, more than running away from it and more than kind of getting lost in it, like holding our seat with the dignity of saying that we're making a choice as much as we can to be with it. So say like myself getting angry and then not liking myself being angry. Like when, you know, my husband and I are pretty much considered immune for a period of time and yet we still wear masks and gloves to the grocery store because Partly because we don't know and partly because we also want to be part of this collective movement of everybody showing that we're protecting each other. But I must say that my husband got a lot closer to death than I did. And he's was correspondingly, at least at first, feeling sort of more liberated than I was feeling. So, And he also has some things with his hands that sometimes make it a little bit harder to like touch things with gloves or, you know, that kind of thing. So. 
he wasn't necessarily doing things the way I wanted him to. And those of you who live with other people in this time may have that experience that either you're on the side of feeling like it's going to be more okay than the other person feels, or it's not as okay. And, you know, that's being played out all over the country. The protests and decisions and what to do and how to be. And, you know, we can't all be perfect all the time, nor can other people all be perfect all the time. And where do we start to get really caught? So when I see myself getting caught in that, or in thinking that maybe David is drinking my mouthwash because it's disappearing so quickly and stuff. Like to start to look at our minds like, I'm making it, I'm gonna make a choice to really look at this as how it is. You know, I'm both not liking it uh, and not liking that I'm not liking it. And just how can I relate, like come to some tenderness of acknowledging, like I don't have the space to be very kind right now. And maybe even voice that, like I said that on the phone the other day to someone who was telling me a result that I didn't want. And I said, you know, for a, a question that I was asking, not not a chemical result or anything, but saying like, I just, it's really hard to hear that information right now. I'm not able to be really nice to you. <laughs> and I hung up. So this witnessing mind, as we make the choice, we start to see, and that kind of moves things along a little bit differently than we're not trapped um, we can start to say like it's not you that's pissing me off like i'm not angry there's anger here it's not like you know we often say i'm angry like i'm not myself anymore i'm just angry or you're doing this to me and there's both a forgiveness and a dignity into moving into the space of working with this with mindfulness our deeper mind our equanimity mind says it's just like this right now. And we can touch any condition with that. It's like this right now. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to do anything about it when we can, but just for now, it's like this. So the third part of this is the third noble truth. I've kind of been going through the noble truths a little bit. Like if you didn't notice the third one, for those of you who know this, is sort of the sense of release. Like I was outside the grocery store the other day and this woman said she'd been waiting there for two hours for something to be prepared for her. That usually takes 10 minutes, but there just weren't enough people in the store or something, or they weren't used to preparing things in this way. And she said, yeah, but you know, we can all learn how to be more patient, right? She said, standing with her feet on the little footprints, you know? So also this quality of letting go or letting be, um, being patient. Being patient doesn't mean like kind of gritting your teeth and hating it and knowing that it's gonna you're gonna be here a long time. Being patient sometimes means kind of stopping the clock inside yourself and stopping the expectation for things to happen on a schedule that we control for the knowledge to emerge. What I'd like to relate this to is um, from my own illness tale is that I couldn't really practice formally when I was, you know, that sick. I could just kind of lie on the bed and let the sensations come and go. And it was a little dreamy, you know, that was this moment of reality was all that I really had the energy to be present for, like not to even wish that it was going to be different, but just to, it almost took all my strength to be with what there was. And there was something in that about not 
realizing that I, I was just gonna, I had done what I could. I'd like drunk the hot water and taken the vitamin C and there was nowhere to go really. It was quite comfortable on some weird level, like not to feel like I had to be um, making something happen or doing anything different from what I was doing at the time. What I expected, what I foresaw, not fighting the experience either. Except sometimes it felt like I kind of couldn't quite not fight it and that it maybe wasn't good to just let it all be there because it was a, a disease. <laughs> but there was a sweetness in um, the fully letting go into the moment that, um, you know, when you're sick, that's all you can do. And I think sometimes in the meditation, I remember in retreats, my one of my teachers saying, well, you know, it's kind of like being sick and being in a retreat. You just let go and you just do the simplest things slowly and with more attention. So I invite that quality sometimes of just releasing whatever we thought should be happening, whatever we wish were happening, whatever we don't like, and see if we can just let be whatever is happening. And that in the very letting be or in that openness, there's a quality of comfort and even being able to steady yourself with this ability of our mind to choose a kind of attitude of openness or called letting go. A friend of mine visited a reported full enlightened being in Burma one time in the South in Rakhine State. And this person was a monk and they were very old and they didn't have a lot to say. And the only thing, the only words that they had to share was, it's so sweet. It's just so very sweet. And there's something in opening to what is that actually has that taste of sweetness and that taste of joy, even, even if what is in front of us may not be well known or somehow the naturalness of our life just moving through our veins and our consciousness touching on things and the sense stores working and even in the quiet hearing the birds sing. See that stoppage. So then the fourth noble truth, like the sort of the feeling of um, producing the, the good conditions inside ourselves or the path. Um, say that after David and I had been sick for about seven weeks or something, 40 days, there, our city decided that we could have a, another test because we were both tested positive and, you know, various reasons. But so, wow, we were like, okay, good. We want to go like contribute to research and also see if our viruses are all gone. And it turns out that we were still testing positive <laughs> after seven or eight weeks. And it was like, oh, wow. Um, subsequently, like even within the day or two of our getting that result, the Chinese researchers who are at the edge of all this have realized that after a certain period of time, like when you haven't had a fever or a cough for 10 days, you're probably not that contagious, which is actually kind of good news. You're probably actually not contagious or maybe even sick at all, but there's just a lot of 
garbage left in your nose or something. <laughs> so that was kind of reassuring. And it was nice to hear that, you know, this, the clout of this horrible, you know, RNA producing virus actually has a limit and it's not endlessly powerful and potent to make people miserable. But for me, the, the, um, that positive test had this feeling of like, okay, so don't rush into the future. Don't go so quickly. Remember, you know, you still want to self-quarantine and take care and you still want to remember all the insights that you received from the time when, you know, you were really like deeply enmeshed in it. And I think that a lot of us have let things catch up with us in self-isolation too, like signing up for a whole bunch of different Dharma talks or, you know, having these cocktail party Zooms that conflict with each other and going from one to another or whatever it might be like our, some of us have been working full time at home. So I don't want to say that everyone's been at rest, but there's a way that um, as this goes on and on, the itching and to get out um, might take a, take, you know, take more traction and our situation feels more normal because our minds sort of normalize it, sort of normalizes it. So what I've realized is that I actually want to retain the ability to engage more deeply in experience from this time um, and remember to sort of disengage, remember the focus on the simplest things of, you know, how grateful we were that friends showed up and brought food or, you know, just to be grateful for the groceries that we're now able and permitted to go and get, you know, with our rubber gloves and our medical masks and all of that to say that I still want to hear the birds singing. I still want to be able to hear the relative quiet in the streets. Um, I still want to notice the difference between being more at peace and a little bit simpler as I can. I also want to resolve to take whatever steps are necessary to be part of the um, better changes of our world. But I think that cultivating a quality of stillness, a pause, deepening is part of the journey that we should try to hold on to and bring with us as we go be on this journey together of staying home. Like, keep the sense of that deeper home that we might be able to find here. So I'll close with a poem called So Much Happiness by Naomi Shihab Nye. And some of you may know her poem about compassion is beautiful. And this one has some similar qualities. Maybe you've heard it before, but in relationship to um, not holding on kind of, um, that there's a happiness that comes from not holding on. It's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub up against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you may have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like tickets, stubs, or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need us to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house, singing. It disappears when it wants to. You're happy either way. 
Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, soiled linens and the scratched records. Since there's no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug. You raise your hands and it flows out of you and into everything you touch. You're not responsible, you take no credit. As the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. So this night sky, this deep space of our heart and mind, may we hold and share everything that appears as if it were the moon, as if it were something that um, we can shine with. Thank you. Well, how about if we close with a short, um, another meditational recollection um, to seal our evening together? Look, I said in the early, um, in the sitting, that one of the teachers I've had in the past and still am relation, relating to says the only reason to practice meditation is to benefit living beings. And that includes ourselves. you know. And it also means that whatever is beneficial is Dharma practice, you know, so it doesn't mean that it's only what we do on our cushion, but there are things that we can develop in meditation, skills of the way we train our mind that are really helpful. So I want to invite us to remember, you know, I was saying, remember something kind that someone did for you. Um, Could we remember something kind that we did for someone else? I saw a a couple of real elders making their way down the sidewalk today and I stepped into the street to let them go. And one of them did like this. (laughs) The woman, the female of the two. But anyway, like that. And to feel feel the goodness of your of yourself and that wish to be helpful and the intention that you had. See if you can find, I can really just let yourself feel the pure aspect of your own heart, your own mind. The wisdom, clarity, the intelligence that strategizes. Really feel 
free to let yourself know. The goodness in your nature. There's a part of each of us that's really pure. And that it's not just inert, you know, it has real abilities. We have real abilities. and a willingness to share them. So as if our inner goodness we shared with ourselves, but also with others with whom we come into contact. And even those who we may not directly come into contact with. So may all our good efforts come to fruition. May our meditation help us to flourish and find peace in our own lives and offer such peace and care to others so that we can contribute to safety, well-being. that we can experience the liberation that these teachings talk about, not just for ourselves, but not just alone, but along with each other and as a community of practitioners, keeping Cambridge Insight as a place of refuge. Thank you, everybody.